The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, let me echo uh, Randy's comments and say we're grateful again and thankful that you've taken the time to be here this weekend. Uh, There's no such thing as a successful conference without uh, attendees. And so we're very grateful um, that you've uh, taken the time and stayed throughout the day as we've been considering together a biblical vision of the family. And uh, it's amazing, isn't it, how many different streams, different issues that arise from that seemingly, uh, apparently simple question. There are so many things that bear relevance to to it, and we've tried to touch on just some of them uh, this weekend recovering a vision, God's vision, uh, for the family, and we trust that you've benefited and been blessed by the the speakers, the fellowship, the resources, and everything else uh, this weekend. I want to conclude this evening by trying to bring some of those thoughts and some of those themes together and talk about the family and the law of God, the family and the law of God. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5 and reading from verse 13. The issue of the Word of God and the issue of recovering anything biblical is the question, of course, of sovereignty and lordship. Sovereignty and lordship. Who is Lord? Is it God's Word, which speaks to us finally and fully and truthfully, or is it, in the end, man's ideas? I think Jesus helps us with this. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house." Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled." Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. At the heart of Uh, the message this weekend, and the heart of the message of the EICC is first and foremost the impossibility of duality, or as I used to say when I lived in England, duality, but I'm told that I've adopted a Canadian pronunciation for some words, so duality I think is what we say here in North America, the impossibility of duality. Now, I believe that uh, we've heard a lot today, and there's probably very little space left in your bulging mind at this point, throbbing brain, 
uh, to cope with much more. But I'm just going to ask you to uh, stretch yourself again a little bit in this last session as we think about this. At the heart of what we're saying is there is an impossibility of duality. This is a quotation. In his word, God absolutely forbids every inclination and every effort to break up your life into two parts. One part for yourself and the other part for him. End quote. That was spoken by a Dutch theologian, statesman, and for a time prime minister, Abraham Kuyper. Abraham Kuyper. What does that mean in practice? It simply means this, that every aspect of your life and mine is essentially religious, and there cannot be any artificial dichotomy between the private and the public, between faith and life, or even between heaven and earth. These dualisms that have invaded and infected the church have done a great deal of damage. Listen to what Abraham Kuyper, 19th century, a great man, said. This is what he said. Christians must serve God within the world and not flee into seclusion as monks and some Anabaptists have done, when Christians obtain positions of civil authority, they must operate in obedience to God, since the Lord has ordained their authority, Romans 13, 1 through 7. This, Kuiper argued, means that civil government must restrain blasphemy where it directly assumes the character of an affront to the divine majesty. The constitution of the state should acknowledge God as supreme ruler, and the government should set aside its regular activities on Sunday and protect it as a day of worship. Magistrates should regard themselves as responsible to God in the discharge of their duties. They should punish public attacks upon God as crimes against civil law, which acknowledges God as the source of the state's authority, end quote. Now, a hundred years later, that sounds like a foreign religion, doesn't it? It sounds like a foreign faith a hundred years later. Those kind of convictions that were carried by great Dutch leaders, European leaders, American leaders, Canadian leaders, as we've heard this afternoon, seem alien, even ridiculous to our minds today. And yet, uh, even though I myself am not a Sabbatarian, that is, I I don't uh, believe that necessary work is forbidden on the Sabbath, it is within your lifetime and mine that Sabbath laws have been abolished in this country. That actually Sunday was considered a significant day in Canada. Different from all the other days, a day set apart in some way for worship. Despite his historical proximity to us, Kuiper is unknown to most modern Christians, and many would find it difficult to identify even with the God and faith about which he speaks, which is one where every aspect of life and faith are integrated in God-ordained time. This was the issue of Gnosticism that interestingly came up in the Q&A there. The Gnostics who didn't believe that God was really involved in time and history, but Scripture tells us everywhere that 
Time and history is ordained by God, that it is ordered by God, that His providence governs it, and He's called the people to Himself to live for His glory within it. Such a view as that of Kuiper's would be considered by many in our culture as woefully intolerant. And yet, intolerance, and I think this has probably come through loud and clear in the, over the weekend, is a fact, an inescapable fact of life. Intolerance is an inescapable fact of life. Let me cite one social commentator for you. Intolerance is inescapable. If we are Christians and abide by Scripture, we will be intolerant towards murder, theft, adultery, false witness, and other offenses against God's order. They will be a violation of our freedom and order under God and an oppression of godly men. If, on the other hand, we are sinners and lawbreakers by nature, we will be intolerant of God and of His people, intolerant of godly laws and restraints precisely because we tolerate and love sin. Our Lord stated the issues clearly No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. It is necessary for us to love God and His Word, and it is our nature to do so as believers. This means that we therefore hate sin and regard it as an offense against God and man, an intolerable violation of godly order. Similarly, those who hate God want to eliminate Him and us and everything which is an aspect of God's law and order and word from the universe. They are savagely intolerant. In other words, what you tolerate says a great deal about you. It identifies your loyalties and your love, and it classifies your nature clearly, end quote. What you tolerate... defines really who you are, what you find tolerable. And because we have done increasingly in our culture what Kuiper decries, that is we've separated life into two parts, the secular and the sacred, the personal and the public, the spiritual and the material, and this is Gnosticism, one part for ourselves, the other for God, what happens is is that all manner of sin is tolerated in the lower story. So you've got a two-story dualistic vision of reality, and in the lower story, anything's tolerable. It's a sphere that's allegedly outside of God, and there, then, toleration, as it were, even sin, becomes a practical virtue. And this is relativism. Relativism in the moral order. And of course, Scripture, our Lord Jesus Himself here in Matthew 5, denies the possibility of relativism. There is an objective standard of right and truth. There is a hierarchy of values, and I can't place my interests, however important they may be to me, above those which God declares to be important. And of course, this is the acid test of the Christian faith, isn't it? the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Do we want Him only as our Savior, but also as our Lord? God, by right of creation, legislates for all men. 
He doesn't just legislate for a few, for those who like it. He defines meaning, life, morality, truth for all. That's the very essence of the Christian view of morality. It's inescapable in Scripture. Now, the progressive, and I'll give you another big word here to scribble down, re-Grecianization of the church. That doesn't mean brill cream. The re-Grecianization of the church since the Puritan age means the severing of the Hebrew or biblical roots is at the heart, I believe, of the current disintegration of life even within the church. Not simply in terms of popular relativism, but in terms of the escapist mentality that we touched on in the Q&A, where various dualisms have revived and gained prominence in the church and confused believers, they speak, we increasingly speak of escape and retreat from the world, as opposed to engagement with it and transformation of it. The lower story, as it were, the supposed lower story is less important, unimportant to God, Sometimes they're even considered just evil. Then we're not pursuing the redemption of it and the reconciliation of all things. In his important book uh, on the Jewish roots of the Christian faith, Marvin R. Wilson points to the very important fact that our time and life-abandoning tendency is a resurgence of Greek philosophy and a loss of our biblical memory. It's the resurgence of Greek philosophy, and it doesn't come out of Scripture. In fact, he shows that the first thing God sanctifies in Scripture, that is, sets apart, the first thing that he sanctifies is not a place or a thing, it's time itself. This is what he says, God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy. God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. Biblical history, he says, is not the story of celebrating space, but the revelation of how people learn to sanctify moments, events, time. Thus, the essence of spirituality is for God's people to know the dynamic presence and quickening power of the heavenly Lord at work on earth in their daily lives and activities. Now, to me, that's exciting, (laughs) that God sanctifies time so that every aspect of your life has been set apart by God for His purposes and for His glory, and it is a gift of God, sanctified by God for us to serve Him. In other words, friends, God is in the details. It's not the devil who's in the details. Do we have that expression in Canada, the devil's in the details? God is in the details. You ever been wandering your way through the book of Leviticus and thinking, what is the point of all of this detail? Why do we have to have chapter after chapter about the the, the curtain rails and the curtain rings and the cloth and the pomegranates and the endless description? Do you know why? Because God is in the details. Because that was glorifying to God. In fact, in the Holy of Holies where only one man went once a year, 
You have the most beautiful and ornate decorations because it was for the glory of God. You see, we're so man-centered in our thinking, we can't possibly conceive that anything could be done or purpose unless it's not some immediate personal benefit to me. But the Christian life is about finding our humanity and glorifying God in all the details. So Paul the Apostle says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, in other words, in the most apparently mundane activity of life, do it all for the glory of God. There is no artificial distinction in Scripture between the sacred and the secular. All time, all the earth, all of life is God's. It's sustained by Him. It's ordained by Him. It's governed by Him. As one of my favorite Christian philosophers put it, Cornelius Van Til, there's not an atom in the whole universe over which God has not declared mine. That might have been Kuiper, actually, but Van Til just had a derivation of it. We are accustomed to associating spirituality with heavenly-mindedness, are we not? Oh, he's a really spiritual person. She's a really spiritual person because they're just so heavenly-minded. We even talk about spiritual retreats. Think about that terminology for a minute. A spiritual retreat. Now, of course, we know what we mean. We're taking time out to be refreshed or whatever. But the whole terminology is utterly unbiblical. I make a holistic kingdom advance, not a spiritual retreat. That's what we're called to, kingdom advancement, not spiritual retreats. This separation of life. So we think in terms of the inner soul, or the inner life, the beautific vision, and so, on, and so on, as those spiritual things. But the laundry and the children and education and law and culture and gardening, that's not spiritual. This is nonsense. This has nothing to do with biblical faith. That is the Grecianization of the church and our thinking. And it wasn't really until we saw a revival of the Hebraic way of thinking in the Reformation, that's why it was with Calvin and the Reformers that the whole idea of the holy and godly vocation, whether you're a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, came to the fore. We'll come back to that in just a moment. It's the sanctity of all of time in which Christ is now reconciling all things unto himself in heaven and on earth. That's not my words. And he's far above authority and power in heaven and in earth. And he's working now, friends, because Jesus has told us so here in Matthew 5, 13 through 15, 16, through his called out people who are to be salt and light. That's how he's working. This is a faith that desperately needs restatement in our time. The, the impossibility of duality for the Christian. I think that's at the heart of the message of Scripture. It's at the heart of the message of the EICC. How do we recover then our biblical memory in terms of the Word of God for our time and for the family? It was the historian Alexis de Tocqueville who said, when the past no longer illuminates the future, the spirit walks in darkness. When the past no longer illuminates the future, 
the Spirit walks in darkness. That's why it's a great tragedy and a great issue, a problem, that today we live in a time disconnected with history like never before. We see the deleterious effects of the loss of biblical faith and our historical amnesia, and it's being felt by non-evangelical secular historians and social commentators. It's a sad day for the church when it falls to those outside the church to sound the alarm about the problems of social decay and their origins. As a faithful, integrated, applied biblical faith has waned, so the biblical family, morality, education, law, culture are eroding before us. I've recently been reading a a massive work on law and revolution in the Western world by a Harvard professor, Harold J. Berman. To the best of my knowledge, he is not an evangelical Christian. And he says this, neither law nor history can be understood, and more than that, neither can be preserved if the legal tradition of which they are both part is forgotten or rejected. And this is what he says about the current state of law in the West. And I quote, in the early 21st century, the Western legal tradition is no longer alive and well. There is an element of prophecy in all historiography. It has been well said that a historian is a prophet in reverse. The decline of the Western legal tradition in our century illuminates the nature of that tradition in the centuries in which it flourished. And he goes on to demonstrate in encyclopedic fashion that not only was Western European law explicitly drawn from the law of God, and elements of the Justinian Code prior to the Papal Revolution in the 12th century, but that the Protestant Reformation and its view of the validity of God's law decisively shaped all Western legal and social institutions. This is what he tells us about the early European codes, and I quote, listen carefully, I know it's hard at the end of the day, but these are really important statements. The Germanic codes contain strong exhortations in favor of more just and more humane legal values. The laws of King Alfred, for example, start with the Ten Commandments and a restatement of the laws of Moses, a summary of the Acts of the Apostles and references to the monastic penitentials. Christianity broke the fiction of the immutability of folklore. Gradually, between the 6th and 11th centuries, Germanic law, with its overwhelming biases of sex, class, race, and age, was affected by the fundamental Christian doctrine of the equality of persons before God, that is, as image bearers of God, woman and man, slave and free, poor and rich, child and adult. And in his second volume, which focuses on the Reformation, This is, I think, one of his most important citations. He says this. Listen again. The English Puritans, and we've been hearing about them in the last session, shared the belief that human history is wholly within the providence of God, that it is primarily a spiritual story of the unfolding of God's own purposes. This strong belief in divine providence led them to view England as an elect nation, destined to reveal and embody God's mission for mankind. 
They believed further that God willed and commanded what they called the reformation of the world, and they emphasized the role of law as a means of such reformation. An additional element in the Puritan belief system that strongly affected the development of English political and legal institutions was its emphasis on the corporate character of Christian communities. Anglo-Calvinist Puritanism was essentially a communitarian religion. It emphasized the existence of a divine covenant under which the congregation of the faithful was to be a light to all the nations of the world, a city on a hill. This in turn led them to emphasize not only the virtues of hard work, frugality, discipline, self-improvement, and other features of what has come to be called the Puritan work ethic, but also on the sanctity of human covenants of public responsibility, community service, corporate enterprise, mutual trust, and other associated qualities with the concept of public spirit. I know that's a long quote. What's he saying? The Protestant Reformation believed in the providence of God, the law of God, and that affected every single institution that we know in the English-speaking world today. Define them. Define them. The very idea, for example, of equality under the law comes right out of the Bible. You will have one law, God's Word says, for the stranger and for the covenant member, for the alien and the stranger. There is only one law. Equality under the law is the only kind of equality that Scripture defines for human beings. Under God as His image bearers and under His law equally applies to all of us. And he goes on to show then that on that foundation, these, he says, these fundamental characteristics of the Western legal tradition were founded on Christian belief, first in its Roman Catholic form, later in its Lutheran and Calvinistic forms. Deism, the religious faith of the so-called enlightenment, he says, substituted for the Christian belief in divine law, a belief in God-given reason and the supremacy of public opinion. Nevertheless, in 1914, it continued to be widely believed in the West that the ultimate sources of authentic, positive law are divine law, especially the Ten Commandments, end quote. Now, you think about that for a moment. He says that the Enlightenment the so-called enlightenment, and it's deism, that's its denial of the Trinity, its belief in a vague, abstract deity, was the source of this idea that reason becomes the arbiter of moral truth and the supremacy, the sovereignty, moves from God to public opinion. So that in the very concept of, uh, and if you weren't, if you missed, uh, you weren't in um, uh, Dr. Gairdner's session, he talked about this, the very idea that the Canadian founding fathers did not believe in some kind of unbridled, unqualified democracy, which simply means demos, the will of the people, is the, is the will of God. The will of the people is not necessarily the will of God. There always has to be checks and balances. Sovereignty, lordship, is always located in God. 
And this is what gave us the privileges and the freedoms that we enjoy. I could, I could spend the whole of this lecture sketching what happened then through the Reformation, through John Knox on into Scotland, the father of Puritanism, to uh, the, the father of parliamentary democracy in England, Oliver Cromwell, and all that was going on then in the, Protestant, the, the period following the uh, Protestant Reformation with the Puritans, the establishment of the United States, Massachusetts Bay Colony, and its government under the law of God, and on and on. The very idea of common law, English common law, was common because everybody knew it. It was the Ten Commandments. <laughs> now, you need professional legal scholars in every minute, minute field of modern bureaucracy because nobody knows what the law is anymore. This is a very important statement that Berman has made because... In a time inhabited by an antinomian church, that it, the antinomianism means anti-law, and by, by the way, the lawless one, the, the antichrist, we're told in Scripture, the spirit of antichrist, antinomos, is the lawless one. The spirit of antichrist is lawlessness. The apostle tells us that sin is lawlessness. Paul tells us love is the fulfillment of the law. He tells us in Romans 3.31, has, uh, do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. He says, God forbid, we uphold the law. Jesus tells us that till heaven and earth pass away, nothing is going to pass from his law word until everything has been accomplished. It's a categorical statement. And those who teach the truth the reality of God's word and law will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But he tells us critically, Berman, that the fabric, the familial fabric of our society was built then on the word of God through the Reformed tradition. And second and critically, he tells us that the replacement of biblical law and scriptural truth with man's law was a product of deism and the enlightenment, which were hostile to Christianity where the law of God is sacrificed on the altar of reason and public opinion. The move away from Scripture in the West, from the Word of God, is a move away from a Hebraic understanding of reality back to a Greek understanding. That's why we're coming back socially to all these pagan practices. Homosexuality, a homoerotic culture dominated uh, the Greco-Roman world. These things will always reappear when you move away from the Word of God. Wilson tells us during the period of the Protestant Reformation, he says, signs of the re-Judaization of the Christian faith began to surface as Hebraic biblical categories were rediscovered. The Reformers put stress on the principle of sola scriptura, the consequent de-emphasis on tradition brought with it a measure of return to biblical roots. Accordingly, during the two centuries following the Reformation, several groups recognized the importance of once again emphasizing the Hebraic heritage of the church. Among these were the Puritans who founded Pilgrim America and the leaders who pioneered American education. Very interestingly, he goes on to say, and by the way, when I cite some of the opinions and convictions of the Puritans in England who 
saw England as having a unique role in history. I'm not saying that I share that, okay? But they took seriously the covenant of God. They believed that they were in covenant with God. The Scottish did, the Covenanters did, the Puritans did. Did you know that the presidential oath of office in America was historically taken with the Bible open at Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and cursings of the Word of God? In Canada, the Canadian fathers believed that there was a special role that Canada had to play in history. I recommend to you William Westfall's book, uh, uh, The Protestant Culture of 19th Century Ontario. Not a Christian historian from York University. He tells this story of the Canadian conviction about the calling of Canada. The important thing, as he shows us, Wilson shows us, that the Puritans consider themselves like the children of Israel fleeing Egypt for the Promised Land. The Atlantic represented the Red Sea. They saw themselves as under the covenant with uh, Abraham and governed by God's covenant word. And the leading Hebrew scholars of that time were not the Jews, but the Puritans. John Harvard was the name of the minister, the man, uh, after whom Harvard University was founded. He was a Puritan, 1636. With that context in mind, and that's a sketch, with that context in mind, it's obvious that we see a state of declension and decay in our culture. We've seen that throughout this weekend. The prophetic words of G.K. Chesterton then are proving accurate. He said, if man will not be governed by the Ten Commandments, they shall be governed by 10,000 commandments. If man will not be governed by the Ten Commandments, they'll be governed by the 10,000 commandments. For the most part, what has happened in the last 80 years is the church has progressively surrendered in one way or another, step by step, to the spirit of the age And at times today even, I would put it more strongly than that, I would say that those who stand for God's Word and God's law in our time, even in the church, are considered somehow enemies. And hostility towards such people is engendered even in the life of the church. Because we, as a church, dare I say, have become increasingly hostile to God's standards. Berman's analysis reveals that that hostility to God's law is in continuity with the Enlightenment philosophers and the deists who despise the gospel and have brought our culture to the brink of death in our time. Well, my contention is obvious that uh, we need a robust return to all of God's Word for the family and the church, a recovery of these things that embraces God's Word as Jesus Christ teaches us to embrace it right here in Matthew 5. I haven't got time. I had prepared in my notes plotting all the way back to Augustine through Calvin in citations about how they viewed the law of God. I can't do that now, but take it from me that, uh, and if you want some of these citations, I can provide them for you, that the law of God was absolutely central to these men's understanding, to the evangelical understanding of the Christian's responsibility. Maybe I will just give you one of these quotes. Can you cope with it? Augustine, writing against the Pelagians about the fact that Christ has not come to destroy but fulfill. It is quite clear 
that the New Testament leaves no doubt on the matter. What are the law and the prophets that Christ came not to destroy but to fulfill? It was the law given to Moses, which through Jesus Christ says, He wrote of me. For undoubtedly this is the law that was added, that the sin might abound. Words which you, that's the Pelagians, often ignorantly quote as reproach to the law. Read what is there said of the law. The law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then what is good made death to me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear as sin, produced death in me by what is good. Romans 7, 12 through 13. The intent was that, being thus humbled, they might learn that only by grace through faith could they be set free from subjection to the law as transgressors and be reconciled to the law as righteous people. So the righteousness of the same law is fulfilled by the grace of the Spirit in those who learn from Christ to be meek and lowly in heart, for Christ came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, end quote. Now, this was the position of the Reformation. You know, it is very common for Christians to speak, throw out uh, cheap aphorisms and throw away cliches like, I'm not under law, I'm under grace, brother. In theological ignorance, that the grace of God, the, 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 our lawlessness took Christ to the cross to redeem us should seem now odd that God should discard his own moral character after the cross, don't you think? But the rather, as the Scripture clearly teaches us, he has redeemed us from the curse of the law so that we might now be the righteousness of God. The whole new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews chapter 8 is that the law is now written on our hearts. You know something, the Spirit of God does not say something contradictory to His Word. Oh, the Spirit gave me the liberty, did He? So the Holy Spirit is now divided against Himself. The Holy Spirit who revealed God's law. The Christ who followed Moses as the rock in the desert, who spoke from the burning bush, He's now changed His mind. No, Paul says it was that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, that Christ died. That's why Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, that is their hypocrisy. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. He has saved us, in other words, unto holiness, not unto lawlessness. That He's redeemed us, and He's transforming us, He's conforming us to the image of who? His Son. What, so that you and I can... What did Jesus look like? What was the image of Christ? Was Christ a lawbreaker? No. The Holy Spirit now is doing this transformative work, and that's exactly what our forebears believed. It's what they taught. It's what Paul teaches. It's no surprise then when you go to the Reformation and Melanchthon and Booser and Calvin and Beezer and Zwingli and Knox and on the high regard for the law of God in the purposes of God for church and for society. And that could be illustrated to the point of exhaustion. And I shan't do that to you. Such a fundamentally positive view of the law of God was the 
distinctive ethical contribution in that respect of the Reformation period. It brought it back to the center. That God's word, God's truth, there is an absolute context and it matters for man personally before God, but also for society. In fact, the Apostle Paul teaches us in 1 Timothy 1 that the law is given to restrain in part evil. You go and read 1 Timothy 1 in your own time and see how Paul says we can use the law legitimately. There was the basic conviction that the law has three functions. It convinces us of sin like a mirror. So in other words, when we see the holiness of God in His law, we're convicted of our own sin and failure. Paul said, I have not known sin but by the law. It also restrains like a bridle for the lawless. I've just mentioned 1 Timothy 1. And it arouses the godly to obedience. In short, God's Word, God's law, as Jesus restates it here, is central to our lives and to the family. We cannot jettison the law of God and cast it aside as unimportant. One of the main reasons for that is God's law has a lot to say about the family. The family. Let me give one further illustration because I can see some skeptics out there. Most of us here would believe that bestiality is wrong, that it's a sin. Anybody not think bestiality is a sin and want to admit it in here? Uh, If somebody can show me where bestiality is referenced in the New Testament, I'd be glad to see it. In fact, if you, can, you can't even reference bestiality directly in the Ten Commandments themselves. You have to go to the illustrations of the Ten Commandments, to case law, to find the forbidding of bestiality. There's many other illustrations like that. The point is, the principle of Christian interpretation of the Word of God is continuity, unless discontinuity has been specifically indicated. So we know, of course, that circumcision and the ceremonies and the laws of separation have been set aside. Actually, rather, they've been transposed in Jesus Christ. He is our great high priest. He goes into the Holy of Holies on our behalf. He makes the sin offering for us before God. We know those have been set aside, transposed. The temple, don't forget, was just a copy, we're told in Hebrews, of what's already in heaven. Christ today makes intercession for us. The image is all of the temple of God. Now, Peter the apostle walked with Jesus, didn't he? He talked with Jesus throughout his public ministry. He was discipled by our Lord himself. Peter the apostle is baptized with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, isn't he? In Acts 2. And he's commissioned by God and the church to reach the Jews. In Acts chapter 10, chapters and chapters later, where do you find the apostle Peter? He's in, I think he's in Joppa. And where is he? He's on a roof taking a break. And he gets a vision. Do you remember what the vision was? A sheet coming down out of heaven, and inside that sheet were all the unclean animals. 
And he hears a voice say to him, kill and eat. And what does he say? No, Lord, I have never touched any unclean thing. Ah, that's strange. Hang on a minute. Didn't Peter walk with... Sure, Jesus chucked the law away, didn't he? Jesus dispensed with all of that, didn't he? Here we've got Peter. He's seen the resurrected Lord. He's baptized in the Holy Spirit. He needs a vision from God for him to believe that it's okay for him to enter a Gentile's house. Cornelius, you remember the messenger comes. There's a knock at the door. I've been sent by the centurion Cornelius. He goes to Cornelius' house. That would have been to make him ceremonially unclean. You don't go into a Gentile's home if you're a Jew and eat with them. And he preaches the gospel to him. God was giving him an object. Well, what was Peter's principle of interpretation of Scripture at that point? Continuity and less discontinuity is indicated. Peter's assumption wasn't, ha, right, well, we've got rid of all God's standards. That's good. Now, how do we live by the Spirit? That's excellent. How are you feeling about that, Paul? How do you feel led today? No, his basic assumption was the continuity of the authority of God's Word until specific revelation set a provision aside, which is what happens. And in the New Testament, our application of the law of God is qualified. And it's critical because it bears on the life of the family. There are promises given in God's Word to the family. One of the promises is restated by Paul in Ephesians. Honor your father and your mother. Paul's assumption isn't that that's been cast away, is it? Honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you, he says, and that you may live long, not in the land, but in the earth. That it may go well with you, not as the Old Testament would put it, in the land, but in the earth. He says, this is the first commandment with a promise attached to it. The family. The blessing of, the promise of blessing and long life, and I believe that's not necessarily speaking directly to the idea that we'll live to great ages, but rather that there is a future Life, there is a future. We have a future. We are blessed and we have a future when we honor the family as God has ordained it. This is why God's law is so important. If you jettison God's law, you're really struggling to understand and define the family. Blessing and long life are seen as the general pattern for those who honor God's covenantal family of which Christ himself is the head. And so the family of God, the church, is promised certain blessings, and the family unit is promised certain blessings, and also certain judgments for disobedience. Because we're in covenant with God, because we're in a treaty agreement with God, we're told that we have to take that agreement seriously. So think about, let me illustrate it for you. What is the covenant meal that we now celebrate as the Christian Passover? Communion. Because it represents the new covenant in Christ's blood, ratified in His blood. Now, that is taken so seriously by Paul that he has to warn the church 
about the covenant implications of abusing the Lord's table. In fact, he tells the church that some of you have died because you've abused the table of the Lord. He says, don't come to the table if you've got something against a brother or sister. And he says, eat and drink what on yourself? Judgment. That we eat and drink judgment on ourselves if we abuse God's covenant. Well, the same is true in the family and in society and in the church. That there are always consequences for disobedience. That to the third and fourth generation, we see the manifestation, the reality of sin. But you know what God's law tells us? That to those who are faithful to His covenant, He promises blessings for a thousand generations. Cursings to the third and fourth generations. Blessing to a thousand generations. To those that fear Him. To those that honor His Word. To those who serve Him. Now what we're seeing in our culture, what we've been described this weekend about our culture, is a product of the judgment of God. Romans 1 and 2 is clear about that, that it gets to a certain point, and Scripture says God hands us over to a depraved mind. Man worshipping and serving the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. There are three basic powers that God gives to the family in His law. You want to get these. Three basic powers. And they're all given to the family. Three basic responsibilities. The first is the control of children. The control of children. Why is that so important? Well, we've been dealing with it. But to govern children is to govern the course of the future. To govern the lives of our children is to govern the course of the future. That's why Hebrews 12 talks about the father's discipline, and he likens it to human father's discipline, that we may share his holiness. That we train and discipline our children because that is God's inheritance for the future. They are God's inheritance. They belong to him, ultimately, finally. One of the key reasons why the modern state, as we've seen through its educational strategies, often seeks to alienate children from parents religiously, generationally, ethically, is to govern the course of the future. It's man's effort to predestine the future in terms of his word, his truth, his idea. Man's idea made incarnate, made real in the world through ideological indoctrination. According to LifeWay research, by the way, over 70% of children in North America in Christian homes have lost their faith by the age of 23. So if we just, as a church in our generation, if we only retained our children in the church, never mind evangelism outside of the existing church family, the church would be 70% stronger. That's quite significant, isn't it? One of the startling examples of this alienation in Canada 
is that, believe it or not, a young child in a public school might become pregnant and report it to her teacher. Legally, she can be counseled and sent to an abortion clinic without consulting the parents or have them ever know their daughter was pregnant. In this country. Who governs the child? The control of children is given by God to the family. And that's why we have to take every aspect of family life so seriously. Scott, uh, Dr. Masson, has already pointed to the fact that we invented these sociological concepts of adolescence. Why? Well, it's a tool of alienation. You alienate the child from the parent. with the expectation of rebellion and sexual experimentation in an effort to destabilize the family. And we talk about the generation gap and cultural generations changing now. They say every seven years, a cultural generation turns over. Every seven years, supposedly. So I'm 36 and I feel utterly out of date in any university that I enter now. I don't know what they're talking about, about the bands they listen to, about all these things. I've not got a clue. The fast pace of change and the taking of children as quickly as possible out from under the governance of their parents. So the control of the future is one of the greatest powers in society, the control of children, I should say, because it affects the course, it governs the course of the future. The second great power is the control of property given by God's law to the family. In Christian law throughout the West, through the Empress Theodora, as I showed on the fir- in the first lecture, in the Western tradition, the control of property is given to the family. What's been the great effort of the great tyrannies of the 20th century? The seizure of the property of the family. These aren't accidents, friends. Th- these are just not sort of historical anomalies. They're just sort of, oh, that's interesting. No, these are attacks on the law of God. That the control of property is given in Scripture to the family, and actually, therefore, contra marks the means of production is in the hands of the family, not the state, the family. The wife is given legal right to the family property to preserve and provide for the family, and there's been a tax on this through taxation, but still in its basic form. Even in Canada today, the control of wealth, like the control of children, in God's order, is to be given to the family, and to to a large degree, still today, although it's continuously under threat, the control of property is in the hands of the family. It's been that way right from the Justinian Code, when God's law was taken into account. The third great power, the final great power uh, given to the family in Scripture is inheritance. Inheritance is tied to the family. Scripture gives us lots of laws of inheritance. We haven't got time to do a study in all of these areas. But Scripture tells us that the eldest godly child is to receive a double portion of the inheritance in order to take responsibility for the care of their parents. Now, Jesus, by the way, reinforces this law in emphatic terms. He condemns the scribes and the Pharisees for saying that if somebody brings a gift to the temple and they say it is korban, a gift to God, that therefore they no longer have to take responsibility for their parents. He accused them of hypocrisy. You read the New Testament carefully, you see how Jesus deals with these issues. The family 
is given the governance of inheritance. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, Proverbs 13, 22. Now today, through taxation, the modern state is trying to claim the inheritance of the firstborn. Most Canadians don't know this because they're not uh, conversant usually with British politics. But in England, we have something called the inheritance tax. It's the most iniquitous of all taxes. And after a pitifully low tax-free ceiling, the state takes 40% of your inheritance. That's the older brother's share. 40%. It is designed, pure and simple, to asset strip the family and remove power from the family. To give us a huge bureaucracy and to enrich the state, which in England is so, Britain is so overspent, if you've been following the news recently, that the austerity measures have just kicked in and... uh, Well, there may be rioting like there was in Greece and France. Who knows? It depends how far they have to go because the country is on the verge of economic ruin. Inheritance is tied to the family. And for the state to take it is just state-sanctioned theft. If you missed Gerdner's lecture, you'll know that he told us, reminded us, that income tax wasn't even a reality in Canada in the 19th century and early part of the 20th century. They are there to take, let the state take the role of the family, increasingly. The, ham, the family's history then, in biblical, the biblical worldview, is that it's the most important welfare agency, the family. The family supports children, usually through university. It provides for the nurture of children, care of the elderly, of relatives, parents. The family's power is absolutely staggering in this. The family is the first school, the first government, the first vocation of every human being. Subsidies are given to couples when they first get married. How many of you were given a gift by your parents or your parents-in-law when you got married to buy your first house or a car? Hmm, quite a few. Okay, well, I was blessed. I had a significant financial gift from my father-in-law when I got married. Bless him for that. It was a kind thing. He wanted to see his daughter married to this impoverished evangelist, not go without. So he helped us buy our first home with a fairly significant gift to give a, have a deposit on our home. The family, you see, functions in all of these ways as essentially the basic source of welfare in Scripture. And tithes and offerings are the charity that comes from the home, from the family. Tithes and offerings are the kingdom resource for the work of God. And this is what I want to conclude with. Tithing is part of God's law. It's not a popular subject today. 2% of North American Christians tithe. But it's critical if we are to respond to all the challenges that we face, and we've been talking about this weekend. We've talked about numerous problems, social problems, difficulties, challenges, the calling of the church in the midst of it all. Do you know what? It costs money. It costs money. 
We can't escape the reality of economics, and God has a means in His law for providing for the kingdom of God and for kingdom resources. It's called the tithe. It's a very interesting history, and I haven't got time to sketch it all. But in order to recover a truly Christian view and practice of family life, of education, of marriage, of social responsibility, we need the kingdom resource of the tithe. We have a good deal today in the church of straining at gnats and swallowing camels. That's a brilliant illustration that Jesus gave us. Straining out a gnat in your drink. Oh, there's a gnat in my uh, wine glass. Let's just get that out. And then swallowing, he says, a camel. It's a joke, basically. How do we do that? Well, we complain about styles of worship, whether it's you know, the organ or the drums or whatever. We get really upset if somebody's smoking a cigar, chewing gum, listening to contemporary music, drinking. These are grievous sins to some of us. None of them biblically are sins, but they're considered cultural sins. And yet the true issues of the law, justice and mercy and giving to God, giving God what is His due, is ignored. Jesus called this essentially legalism. You see, legalism takes two forms. Number one, it's the idea that you can be saved through legal obedience, that you can be justified before God. Paul tells us, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. We cannot be saved but by the righteousness of Christ and by faith in Him. But legalism is also the replacement of God's law with man's. Go and read Mark 7 and Matthew 15 with respect to those who abuse and assault their parents. And Jesus tells us there, that the replacement of human tradition with the law of God, he says, making the word of God of none effect, that's another form of legalism. And we have been pretty upset as North American believers over time about hair length and drinking wine or whatever. It's controversial to have wine out during a communion service. And yet the issues of justice and mercy and giving to God are neglected. Jesus says these are the weighty matters of the law. He says, and don't leave the former undone. Justice and mercy? Yeah, bring your spices, bring your gifts and so forth, but don't leave, this undone. Don't leave those undone, but the weighty matters of the law are what count. And one of those matters is this lordship again of Christ in every aspect of our lives. And tithing is part of a Christian view of life that says essentially, Deuteronomy 10:14, indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God and the earth and all that is within it. There's nothing that you have that does not already belong to God. And we are asked, we're required to give back to God the first fruits, what He's given to us. Some people see it as God's tax. I don't like the word tax. It's God's resource. And actually, it's not a burden because God says through doing it in Malachi, we're going to be blessed. We are blessed. The blessed of God when we give to God. When we give to His work 
and to his purposes. It's the principle of the first fruits. Romans 11:16. for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. We give just a portion of our income back to God because by so doing, we are saying that everything, every aspect of our lives is devoted to him. It's just the first fruit. It just demonstrates that we are utterly surrendered to God. When we take a long, hard look at our pocketbooks, we will see where our priorities are. In North America, we see the remnants of this faith, this conviction everywhere. We see it in the tithe agencies and charities that were established. You can even see it in old tithing barns. Farmers used to bring a tenth of their crops into the tithe barn. And the ministers in North America would uh, get their bread and so forth from the tithe barn. And it would be given to the poor. Your increase is not your assets. God does not require you, if you have ten trees, to give him one tree. Only on the increase of your trees, the fruit of your trees. God is much more merciful than the tax man. You don't, the businessman is not required thus to tithe his gross business income, but his net income. Again, he's more generous than the tax man. The, there are various tithes in Scripture, the celebration tithe, the poor tithe, the temple tithe. And they are worth essentially for the provision of health, welfare, and education. That's what the tithe did. And you know what, friends? It didn't just do it in Scripture in the Old Covenant or the New Covenant. It did it throughout the history of the Western world until very, very recently. You look at the names of the hospitals. You look at the names of the charities. You look at the names of schools. And you know how all these things were paid for before income tax in the last century? Through the tithe of the church. Can you believe that? It was funded through the giving of the church. All these things are alienated from us now. He who pays the piper calls the tune. And who's doing all the paying today? Well, you are indirectly. And when we complain about the heavy taxes, and we complain and so on about what's happening, and if we're not tithing, there's a problem. Because God, the Lord Jesus' answer to heavy taxation is not to say, let's take up arms against the government and throw off the oppressor. It is instead this, render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. And when we give to God what belongs to God, Caesar diminishes at an exponential rate. It has been estimated by one congressman in America in the United States that if every church in the United States took care of one welfare family, the welfare state would cease to exist. Not every Christian. If every church took care of one welfare recipient, and how many of those are fraudulent claims? In Britain, I believe it was, I think the figure was $50 billion worth of welfare fraud. That they're trying to recover. 
You see, Christian welfare is personal. It's from God through His people. And when we personally engage in this work as God's people and recover the church's calling and mission, who's people's gratitude to? Let men see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's how it works, friends. When we palm all these responsibilities off onto the state, people just become a number in the bureaucracy. It's impersonal, and then they start to see it as a right. It's a right. Give me my rights. Oh, there's some austerity measures. They're cutting back on things. Let's go firebomb the banks in Athens. Because the Lord is the creator of all and the giver of every good and perfect gift, our giving to God is not charity to God, friends. It's just giving God what's His due. He owns it all anyway. By the way, this isn't a plug to give to the EICC. (laughs) This is the fact that the tithe is not even unto the church, friends. The tithe is unto the Lord as you distribute it as a family. I think some of it should go to the church, and if your church is distributing the tithe effectively and well for the cause of the kingdom, most people allow their local church to distribute their tithe. The kingdom of God is not a beggar agency. Render, therefore, says Paul, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom custom, honor to whom honor. But as Jesus says, give to God what belongs to God. And let's be reminded of what Jesus said about giving. It's more blessed to give and to receive. And if we will begin to give to God as His Word requires... There will be incredible transformation. The time is gone, so let me leave you with a couple of illustrations. In America, in the early constitutional period, I believe, as the church continued the Puritan example, everywhere in the Christian world, Christian tithe agencies, Schools, hospitals were created. Job training was given to aliens. Children were placed in Christian schools. English was taught in boarding houses. Chapels were supported. Missions were created. And in one very startling example, we had cities, of course, like Boston and Philadelphia and New York. And what happened was that there was a massive influx of immigrants into these cities, and they were criminals. Because Europe was shipping out its criminal element and often giving them a choice in, in, in the courts. Sometimes the death penalty or you're going to be shipped out to Australia or um, North America, one of the North American cities. So arriving in these great cities were hardened criminals, convicts. So serious was the situation that the historian de Tocqueville traveling at this period in the this now is in the early part of the 19th century, said that Christians formed, and their private agencies formed, he said, the basic government of the United States. And he said that the problems, though, in the cities were so serious, for example, in the Five Points area of New York, being the most notorious, he said the only way that he could see for America to survive was to have a huge standing army that was available for use on its own citizens. That standing army was never created because another army went in and took care of the situation. Anybody seen that horrific film, Gangs of New York? 
That's the five points area. That film is not an exaggeration. And you know what? It was largely Christian workers, often women missionaries, supported by the tithe, who went in there and changed those slums into cities full of Christian citizens and transformed America. So much so that by the 1860s, that's 10 years or so later, young lads were used as runners between the major banks with bags of gold and they weren't robbed. And if they dropped a bag and gold went out on the floor, the men of the community would stand around in a circle while the boy picked up all the gold and continued his run to the next bank. What do you need today? Secure a corps vans and armed guards with shotguns everywhere. Our failure to tithe and give to the Lord as we should is a form of dereliction from the faith. But if we take our responsibilities again seriously to God's word, to the responsibilities given to the family, to the privileges and the powers given to the family, as the key to the well-being of our children and of the future, God can do it again, friends. He can do it again. It's happened before. It happened in the early church. It happened in the Reformation. It happened during the Evangelical Awakening. It happened even here in Canada. It can happen again if we are faithful to the Word of God. And the question comes down to this, really, doesn't it? How much do we really believe God's Word? Isn't it really that simple? The impossibility of duality? It's this word or it's man's ideas. Where have man's ideas got us, friends? Today, we've been talking about them, and somebody said to me during the break, you know, it's, it's a pretty depressing scene, isn't it? It's a difficult situation, this diagnostic approach that we've been doing. Yeah, but we're ending on a positive note. It isn't despair and death for the church of the living God that lives in obedience. It is blessing to a thousand generations of those who fear Him. That is the promise of God for those who are faithful to their calling in God as we seek to recover a biblical vision of the family. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.